0: Everyone, It's July 9th, and this is 508, a podcast about Worcester.
1: And this is Tina Zlodi, candidate for Worcester City Council Challenger. This is Michael Benedetti. I'm the host of 508. Co-host Brandon Malkin. Hi, Brandon. It's happening? This is the first of our hopefully long series of interviews with Worcester City Council Challengers. We have been talking about the questions that we want to ask them over the last few shows. We've got a short list of questions. All of them are issue based. None of them have anything to do with the horse race aspect, the strategy aspect of campaigning. One of them, as traditionally, involves the wire. We're gonna ask the same questions of every candidate and we're gonna find out what they have to say. This week we have a disclosure, which is that Brendan is the treasurer of 15th's campaign
2: sometimes she calls me up and asks me questions, but thankfully I didn't actually read any of the questions, other than, other than discussing them with
1: you two or three weeks ago, I didn't actually look at what you planned on asking, so I wasn't able to give her a heads up on anything. All right, so this week, so that's pretty weird. I on the other hand have nothing to do with this campaign, I've not given Tina any money, uh, I've not worked on anything. I haven't given her a red cent either. I, I, I possibly have liked something on Facebook, I don't know whether I've done that or not. Tina, how are you doing?
0: I'm good, excellent.
1: Why are you running for city council?
0: There's a number of reasons I'm running for City Council, Mike. But to start with, um, Worcester really is in in dire need of change. And we're in dire need of moving our economy forward, thinking outside the box, just being more creative in how Worcester sees itself. And um, secondly, I'm running because there need to be more women in politics. And I'm hoping maybe my run will inspire some college student that I deal with on a daily basis to think about a political future or how they can impact the city that they live in.
1: Uh, how have you been active in public life until, in Worcester up until this campaign?
0: Hmm. Well, not much. I kid. Uh, I founded Start on the Street uh, with a group of people, which is Central Massachusetts' largest arts and cultural festival, uh, which we do two events in the city, uh, which bring approximately 50-plus thousand people to, the, to Park Ave, and then uh, at least five or 6,000 people to Union Station for a handcrafted uh, arts and music event. I've been on the Arts Council for six years. I've been the chair for the last two. Uh, I've been on the board of the Bijou Cinema, um, and I, that's, yeah, that's some of the things I've done.
1: So is there anything in particular that, that made you say, this is the year to run? This is the year to switch, to switch gears from?
0: Yeah, I, I think ultimately the frustration it, the fact that we, I, I liken us to Sisyphus, that we continue to roll that boulder up that hill and it just keeps coming back down again. And at some point we have to hit the tipping point. And I think that with all of the change in uh, the things that are happening downtown, things that are happening in Maine South, that it was just time to step up to the plate and maybe make Worcester move forward.
1: So you talked a little bit in previously about economic development. And one of the questions is where would the jobs come from That would keep more of our high school and college graduates in the city and what is the council's role in creating those jobs?
0: I would say that if we continue to promote small businesses in the city and have them expand that that would expand our job base and we would then be able to take in interns like Amy Chase takes in interns from high schools and colleges and that gives them an opportunity to learn about what she does and that's a way to create more jobs in the city. I'm not sure necessarily what the city council's role would be other than to encourage, you know, businesses to open up in the city and hire people from the city to work in those businesses.
1: What kind of, I mean, you, and you, so you know a lot about how the city runs regulations and things just from doing start on the street and dealing with a million permits a couple times a year. I mean, do you, do you have a sense of the kinds of things that are, that are standing in the way of more
0: small business in Worcester? I think the frustration that I've heard from the small business owners that I've spoken to who have opened up, just the permitting processes, not getting the right information from the right offices, things not being laid out smoothly for them, um, and almost a lack of welcoming. Okay. Uh, more of a suspicion. So what are, you, what are you opening here? Why are you doing that? I mean, not I, I feel like they didn't feel it was a friendly environment or a, an environment that gave them correct information when they needed it in a timely fashion. So I, we need to smooth, smooth that process. We need to streamline it. And we also need to invite investors to come to Worcester to invest in our properties so that when they do invest in a property, a, biz, a small business person can go, hey, I just saw this got renovated and I've always wanted to open up a store here. How do I go about doing that? And having someone in the city be able to walk them through the process and encourage them, not just stodgily walk them through, encourage them to be here.
1: I wanna ask another question which is this is kind of my pet question do we have enough housing in worcester and again what is the, should the city council do about that? so
0: i guess my question would be what kind of housing are we talking about Are we talking like reasonable rent housing for you know low-income mid-income people high like where what are you what are you asking about
1: well i guess i'm asking you, like I'm, that's part of the reason that the question is do we have enough housing like we've seen for example uh city council resolutions in recent weeks like asking, are there some na- neighborhoods that have too much housing? Are there t- some neighborhoods that are sa- that are saturated with housing? Whether that's conflicting with sort of where, th- where the city thinks that neighborhood should go, or it's just conflicting with some infrastructure in that neighborhood, is not clear to me. But I guess different people have different ideas of how much housing we should have, how much you know, what kinds of housing we should have. And I guess I'm just asking you, okay. wh- how do you look at that?
0: I will say I spent about an hour and a half uh, this week with Steve Teasdale, uh, who's the head of the Maine South CDC. We went through sort of the housing things that are happening in Maine South, and right now I think they've got a great amount of housing down there. So, and I think that for for them being, for them having enough housing down there right now, maybe what we need to look at in the neighborhood is maker spaces, live work spaces for artists. So changing the dynamic of the question, do what do we need to change what type of housing we're offering people i think we have right now great low and mid-income housing in the city in different neighborhoods in green over in green street i think in main south but i would like to change the, the question and the dynamic is do we have the right type of housing to keep people in the city that we want to have in the city people who are going to do maker spaces artists live work spaces then again using that as a way to propel the economy the creative economy you will get someone in an artist's lib workspace who will then start a retail store. I mean, it needs to progress past just housing. Um, but I do think, you know, and then we can work into housing and, you know, there's a lot of people on the common that obviously have like mental health issues and have drug abuse issues. And where are they living? And what are we doing to help them? You know, do we have enough? Do we have enough um, drug treatment programs? Do we have enough places to move them into temporary places in order to move them into permanent places? Hmm. So it becomes an even broader conversation
1: yeah I mean that's you know I guess both of those are questions which are are close to my heart like because I know that whenever you you talk about live workspaces that if you want to be legit there are a lot of zoning you can quickly run into zoning problems as far as how many people are in a building what kind of activities are they doing in a building and obviously there is a you know these these laws are there because of those things causing problems of like you're in an apartment, your neighbor in the next apartment opens uh, you know, a machine shop, <laughs> and now you can't sleep, and it's terrible. Or you're in an apartment, your neighbor in the next apartment invites 30 people to live there, now you can't sleep, everything smells terrible, it's not good. But uh, I think that those regulations also do, yeah, sometimes accidentally stand in the way of doing things which are not going to hurt anybody's quality of life and are going to let people do creative and interesting things.
0: Which then increases the quality of the life of everybody living in the city of Worcester.
1: Yeah, yeah. Like, I, like I feel like everybody's always happy with the, you know, like the more artists or whatever there are in the city. Uh, but yeah, like the question of like, well, where is that? I don't know. How do you how do you integrate that in with the existing space? I guess is the
0: question. Well, I mean, you could take one of those beautiful buildings in Maine South, and this is what Steve and I were looking at the other day, was, all right, you've got a a huge section of of space that's just lip space, but you have all these other places that are far enough set back and far away that that's that's what they would be marketed as. It wouldn't be marketed as, hey, Brendan, you and Iris come live in here with your son and then we're going to have Josh Swalek come in with all of his equipment to do forging mm-hmm. and have you guys live next to each other. No, how about Josh Swalek comes in and then talks to his friend who's also doing, you know, woodworking and have them share a place or live in the same building. Yeah. You would have like-minded people working and living together. It wouldn't be, it wouldn't just be throwing things into, into a pile and trying to make it work out. It would literally be structured for this type of an environment.
1: You know, it does seem like... Things are actually working out. I mean, I, I can only look at Worcester over maybe the last twelve years. Mm-hmm. That like, I, it seems like there there were times maybe five or ten years ago when you had thing you had these different uh, co-op galleries or other sort of spaces like being shut down by the city or being shut down by worried landlords. And now you, it seems like there there's. There is more, like, makerspace stuff going on or things like Stone Soup going on. Sure. Which are both legit, you know, which are legit and also, like, doing these creative things and also, like, not getting, uh, running into legal issues or or landlord issues.
0: Right, and that's fantastic, but we need to take it to the next step. We need to take it to the next level. We need to have developers come in here and start creating these, like, spaces for these people to go. And we're losing people ready. We're losing artists to lol. People are going to Lowell because they're creating the spaces in which they can live in and work in, where they can be makers. I mean, not, not nothing against Lowell, but if we're losing people to Boston, Providence, and Lowell for these reasons, we need to look at that.
1: Mm. And so, and so, you do you feel like that's an issue where there needs to be, uh, you know, city councilors like walking the neighborhoods with developers, being like, you know, what it would be great if you did this. It would be great if you did this. Or do you feel like it's a. It is about you know zoning and, and uh, uh, ordinances and things. I think it's or? about
0: both. I think I think that the city council should have a voice in something like that. I think that they should want to bring a developer in and go, hey, we've got this over here, we've got this over here, and and I don't mean just looking at downtown. We need to broaden our spectrum to other neighborhoods, other areas. We have so many amazing factory buildings here. We've got a beautiful space on Pullman Street. I understand it's going to take a lot to renovate it. I understand it's not in the hub of the city, but why does everything have to be downtown? I don't think it does. But that Pullman Street is an amazing space um, that could probably house like thirty to fifty artists. You could drive a dump truck in there. Like
1: they could, like like they would, it would be live workspace for thirty sure. to fifty people.
0: Why not? It's a, it's enormous. You could literally drive a truck up on the second floor and like all through the whole place. That's how big it is. Mm. And that's the kind of stuff we need to look at. We need to look at large scale. You know and inviting artists in and inviting them into spaces
1: and don't let them go to Lowell. You know, you say you say we shouldn't diss Lowell, we can diss Lowell, okay, That's all right. fine. I's, this isn't know. a show about Lowell,
0: <laughs> just didn't want to be rude. <laughs> so, so,
1: Worcester artist Drake Hamilton is walking behind you there. Um,
2: Mike, it's I, Tina's we'll call Tina Dunn on this one because I just had a couple thoughts that I need to get off my head too. That you know, it strikes me that in the last couple of years, these are conversations that the city council has participated in. I, yeah. I can think at least of Connie Lukes in particular not too long ago uh, bringing, I don't think it went anywhere, but starting a conversation about whether or not we should be encouraging or uh, lock, clamping down on uh, home-based businesses. Okay. Uh, it, you know That that was a conversation that happened not too long ago. I know in the process of you and I doing this show, however long that's been, we've had conversations about the city enacting seemingly uh, antiquated, maybe even draconian laws around rooming houses and whatnot, right. limiting the number of people that can live together. Well,
1: to speak, right, especially the laws that say how many unrelated people can live in a home?
2: Yep. Well, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna speak to the, the actual question because that's Tina's thing, but I think it, it speaks to a larger issue, which is, you know, we don't have a master plan that maps out the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years of Worcester development, right? Like we have such a tiny little electorate and a relatively well-rooted group of politicians that I think find themselves oh, speaking to the issue of the day. Which oftentimes ends with uh, which is the loudest, which is the constituent making the most noise today? as opposed to uh, dealing with larger issues that scale over time so we find ourselves having a rooming house conversation because a landlord or a neighbor who happens to be a voter is upset about something without thinking through like well what are the potential negative consequences of that and i'm going to guess that we had the conversation about rooming houses before the economy collapsed and conversations about small business small local businesses of scale That could potentially scale were something that was deemed sexy by your average municipal government. So then we find ourselves behind the eight ball as a city. That like now we have to go back and rewrite ordinance and navigate our way through bad ordinance because the entire country, if not world's economy, changed around us. That's miserable. Like we can't have you cannot have a city function long term if you're only going to be chasing immediate rewards and short term gains. It's only good. And I'm not
1: running for anything.
0: I agree. There does has to be a long-term plan.
1: Uh, cool. I want to ask you the third, the third question, and then I want to maybe round round back to uh, housing for people who are going through mental illness or whatever. Uh, this, the, the Worcester Public Schools and safety in the Worcester Public Schools has probably been the issue that people have talked about this year in Worcester politics. What do you think the City Council's role should be regarding Worcester Public Schools?
0: I don't think the city council has a role in the western public schools. Uh, they have. That's why there's a school committee and I trust that the school committee does their job. We do some budgetary work with them and the, the mayor who is the head of the city council is also the head of the um, school committee. But honestly, I understand the violent com- the violence component, there have been some issues, um, but I just don't think that we really have, the city council should have really much say in that.
1: All right, me, me. Uh, I'll actually ask you two more things and then go back to housing. These are two questions that we've asked for several election cycles now. I want to ask them again. The first question is, how much can you bench?
0: My highest bench was probably 120. My most recent bench was 65.
1: Really? What happened?
0: Uh, I turn. um, I'm almost 50, Mike, but thanks! (laughs) I don't bench as much as I used to.
1: You know usually people tell us their their lifetime max they don't tell, tell us the current amount
0: I don't care that's fine you know what I think the fact that I can bench 65 pounds is pretty impressive
1: good job good Bill job still our, uh, Bill, Col- Bill Coleman thing. is yeah Bill Coleman is still the record holder who I think his lifetime max was it was like three of me. 300 and something it was, yeah, it was yeah, I don't know two of me that's what we need like. to double check whenever we interview with him because we, we do not want this to be some legend that spirals out of control
0: I'm, I'm happy with what I bench I'm good
1: So the other question I like to ask people is about The Wire and this is because uh, there was a a successful political party in Iceland and one of their planks on their platform was that they were going to they were that their elected officials were willing to work with any other elected officials and, and form a coalition with them as long as the other elected officials had watched all five seasons of The Wire. You know, and the wire is an important show to understand cities, to understand America. But you haven't seen the wire.
0: No. And you created
1: There's the great, headline right there. there
0: was, there was great shame apparently great in shame. the this fact is another. That I haven't watched the wire. This
1: is another question, is what have you been doing besides bench pressing and washing the wire?
0: Campaigning for city council, planning start in the street and working? <laughs> really <laughs> just
2: means that your consultants failed you they didn't prep you for no.
0: You know, the funny thing was when I saw your list, I was like, oh, darn, he's going to ask me about The Wire. <laughs> I will say one thing. Gabe Rollins will give me the entire seven seasons or five seasons of The Wire, and I will watch it. All right.
1: Well, I hope I... I uh, yeah. All right. All
0: right. How about this? If I yeah. should win and I come back in two years to another podcast then I will say that I will watch the entirety of The Wire before that happens.
1: Maybe, you know, I'm, I'm actually thinking about Sarai Rivera, who we interviewed, and didn't know how much she could bench, but was willing to arm wrestle me, but for logistical reasons didn't arm wrestle me, that after she was elected, she did come back on and arm wrestle me.
0: Oh, I, well, you need to call her out on that. So, <laughs> so
1: I just want to say, she. I mean, it, it, that's happened. That's I, happened I since I swear, so, I'm
0: a great binge watcher.
1: All I'm saying is, after the election, if you win, you come back and we're going to arm wrestle Oh! We'll find out. Okay. We'll find out who's stronger. We'll
0: probably, find out for real. Probably you. <laughs> we'll find out for real. Um,
1: so I want to round back to uh, another thing that you were saying about housing. You were talking about, you know, the need for, I would say, market rate housing, but also unconventional market rate housing for live workspaces and things like this, but also housing for people who don't have any money, people who are mentally ill, people who have severe addictions, people who are just trying to get by, uh, and, and who somehow the existing housing system is not working for them.
0: Well, people need hope, Like People need treatment. People need to, I mean, other cities have really been able to handle their addicts without putting them in jail getting them into treatment, funding long term treatment, funding housing for them. Um, same thing with the mentally ill. Our our system is completely broken. It's it's a band-aid, it's stake and valium for thirty days or ten days or whatever you know we can afford and then they're right back out on the streets. There needs to be we need to look at other models and how other cities have, have handled their populations of addicts and mentally ill and start to, to take cues from successful cities and not just just like i said keep slapping a band-aid on it. it's not gonna it's not gonna nothing's ever gonna get better so we need as a you know as a council would need to look at what better models are and how do we start to implement them we can't keep shoving people in hotels or just leaving them on the streets it's not fair
1: well i want to thank you for giving quick to the point answers to all these questions we have plenty of time left on the show if there's anything else you want to say this is a good time to say it otherwise we can wrap up
0: um, I don't know. Is there anything else I
1: want to talk about? <laughs> Stuff I want to talk about. No, All right. No, <laughs> the, uh, so, so Tina, thanks for being on the show. I'm done. Brandon Brendan <laughs> No, you your know, thought. I,
2: I, I, just talking about the housing issue and that the, the when it comes to the substance abuse and homelessness in particular part. I mean, that's something that. So we're here in Massachusetts, right, where we like to celebrate ourselves as being these progressive, uh, forward-thinking liberals and whatnot. I mean, out
1: in Utah, which I believe no, at last... Not all of us like to celebrate that, by the way. Well,
2: but I mean, I'm just... Yeah, not all of us. This is Worcester's...
1: I mean, this show is Worcester's libertarian voice.
2: It is Worcester's libertarian voice. But the, uh, you know, you look at Utah, which I believe at last count was the most conservative state in the union. Sure. They've effectively ended... I think we discussed this not too long ago. Effectively ended chronic homelessness because they just did the math using the Housing First model and realized it's cheaper to put somebody in a home uh, and then put the social services side to work and make sure that people have... the resources necessary to get back to school, get back to work, and not worry about the housing component, right? Not constantly be writing vouchers for hotel rooms, not be shuttling people around for different school school systems, and yeah. even within a school district, just giving people that core component of a home, which we find removes all of the stressors that, you know, trail off of that, like, you know, I'm not focused on getting a job or focused on getting uh, an education or whatnot, because this housing thing, one of the basic components of human life escapes me and I, it just it strikes me as odd that of all places Utah is able to figure that out and bring their chronic homelessness rate down to a statistical zero and here in Massachusetts we act as though there are no solutions to these big problems and I think that ties back into your your, your, your original housing question right like we as a nation tend to look at well development as being you know that that was uh, I believe it was Joe Mopley his, his thing about you know the the cranes in the sky being a measure of uh, how successful a region was. Um, But the reality is that we have more homes empty, right, in the United States, than we have homeless people, right? Right. Like, when we're talking about housing, one of the things that's fundamentally flawed is that we have a surplus of housing nationally uh, across the board. There's always more. If that weren't the case, then you couldn't ever find a home to live in, right? Like, you know, prices may vary based on markets and whatnot, but we have more housing stock than we have people, yet we still have people who don't have homes. And that's just like a fundamental flaw in in the the logic that we use to approach uh, some of these social issues in that we conveniently ignore the fact that given the opportunity, data shows people will work and want to work, right? That they actually strive to, to, to better themselves given the opportunity, but you can only place so many stressors on one individual or one family before the desire to do things like chase an education or chase a job Is pushed out of your head because you're more worried about how you're gonna have a roof for your family to be under or feed your family or whatnot again it's it's kind of mind-numbing right because I think some of these solutions are a lot more simple than we give ourselves as a society credit for
1: I tell you I'm so impressed at the success of of, uh, housing first because it's the kind of thing it looks good on paper but it's the kind of thing that I always think like yeah well maybe if the pilot program works but there's gonna be some problem in in scaling it up Mm -hmm. but it's it's a work Pretty good well, as I mean, these again, things go. I mean,
2: Utah may not be the biggest state, but it's a state. I mean, we're not talking about a small township or something, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we're we're talking about a state, and a state was able to, to fix a relatively high chronic homelessness problem. Again, a conservative state where I think some of us would make the argument that the reason they had such a big homeless pro- problem homelessness problem in the first place was lack of funding for social services. But then again, just looking at the math from a, a, a traditionally conservative perspective and realize, hey putting people in homes costs less money than providing mountains of social services, including temporary housing. Yeah, if
1: you're gonna do social services, that's that's the way to do it.
2: After you stabilize the housing component.
1: Tina, your and, comment.
0: Well, and Brendan and I have talked about this before, but it costs less money to get someone treated for their mental illness or their addiction, as opposed to putting them in prison and then tracking them on the long-term. So again, if you give them a home, you get them the treatment that they need, you monitor them and you support them, the slide back, is, is so much less and it's so much more cost-efficient. I mean, yeah, that's just there part of is. that component that we talk about. There it is. And we need to stop criminalizing things that aren't criminal. Mental illness is not a criminal thing. It needs to be dealt with as, as the disease that it is.
1: Well, Tina, thanks for being on the show. Hey,
0: thanks for having me, Mike.
1: Good luck in thanks. running for office. I'm Mike Benedetti. You can send your complaints to pieandcoffee at gmail.com. Also, Brendan Milligan, thanks for thanks being for on the, the show me, this man. week. All right, we'll have many more city council interviews coming up in the, in the coming months. The questions will be the same, only the answers will change. Bye, guys. Yep.